At this time, I need to dismiss all the children. almost forgot, Shinto. Uh, at this time, I need to dismiss the, the children to go to uh, children's worship. If you can meet Miss Chantel in the back, you are welcome to go now. For the rest of us children at heart this morning, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 7, and we will be, we will begin in verse 14. If you're following along in one of the chairback Bibles, you can turn to page 892, uh, page 892, the Gospel of John, the seventh chapter. <clears throat> Just a little background as we, uh, as we dive into the text this morning. You know, chapter 6, we celebrated the Feast of Passover. We saw the Feast of Passover celebrated. And, and, uh, and, and then about six months after that, we, we get into chapter 7. Uh, and chapter 7 begins the Feast of Tabernacle. And as Jesus o- arrives uh, in Jerusalem, he comes at just the right time. He, he has, we saw last week that he has been specific. He's not wanted to go and follow the, uh, the, the, the influence or the exhortation of his half-brothers to leave and to go into Judea at the specific time that they were going. Instead, we'll see in a moment that he waits until kind of the middle of the feast and he shows up in the midst of the temple. And so that's really the context for where we're at in, in chapter 7. Jesus has waited till the exact opportune time, until the time of the Father's leading. And then he has gone right into the midst of the temple in Jerusalem. And there we find him in verse 14, beginning to teach. And so the text this morning, from verses 14 through 36, really is showing us how Jesus is teaching for the glory of God. And that's the title of the message this morning, Teaching for the Glory of God. Everything that Christ does, he's about pointing to the glory of the Father. He wants all people who look at him to be drawn to the Father, to see the Father, and be pointed exactly to the Father. And so we see this morning three scenes that kind of move through verses 14 through 36. If you found your place in verse 14, say amen. And follow along as I read. But it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? And so Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. Verse 22 For this reason, Moses has given circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? 
Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man's from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. Then Jesus cried out of the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I'm from. And I've not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him in verse 30. But no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer, I'm with you. Then I I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we won't find him? He's not intending to go into the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement he said? You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Let us pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, it is our desire to hear from you. We pray that you would teach us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. That you would lead us in the very way that you are challenging the religious leaders, the people who are gathered in the temple, that we would see the truth of who you are, that we would see your teaching and see your divine origin, that you come from the Father. Lord, teach us this morning. We ask that you would encourage our hearts and strengthen us to walk with you. We ask, Father, that you would reveal the areas in our life where where we are not surrendered to you and that you would that you would gently exhort us and call us to follow and to pursue you. And so, Lord, now, as we as we look into your word, we pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, which in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we move through this text, beginning in verse 14, we see really three scenes. And the first scene goes through verse 24. And the first scene teaches us or shows us Jesus' authoritative teaching. Jesus' authoritative teaching. In fact, it leaves us answering the question or, or begs of us to answer the question, am I willing to do His will? Are we willing to do His will? In the prophecy of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, God says, Behold, I'm sending my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus, the messenger of the covenant, here in chapter 7, enters the temple suddenly. 
In the middle of the feast in verse 14 tells us no one knew when, when he would show up. But in fulfilling this, this prophecy in, in Malachi, he, he shows up. In fact, the religious leaders might have even been wondering by this point if he would show up at all. But he showed up on the third day or maybe the fourth day. And when he arrived, here's what happened. He began teaching. When the Jews heard his teaching, verse 15 tells us they were, they were astonished at this man's teaching, at his ability to teach. They asked the question, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? I mean, as they're looking around, they recognize that Jesus hasn't been to the, to the schools that they have gone to. He's not sat under the, the rabbi's tutelage to, to learn from the rabbi and, and be, be discipled by a rabbi. And yet, this man taught with such great authority. In fact, in, in, in next week's message, verse 46, the officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Could you imagine standing there, being one of the disciples, hearing the Lord of glory preach and teach about who he was and how the Father had sent him? They were astonished at his teaching. In fact, Jesus Jesus answers their question. How has this man become learned, having never been educated? He answers their question by telling them where his teaching had come from. His teaching had come from the Father. In fact, in verse 16, he says, My teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. You know, the Sanhedrin expressed a a similar sentiment when the apostles Peter and John in the early church, Acts chapter 4, verse 13, stood in their midst, in the midst of the, the tribunal, the council that was, that was put together in order to hear Peter and John because they had been arrested. And it says in verse 13 of Acts chapter 4, now as they, that is the, uh, the religious leaders, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. Listen, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Simple truth that really needs to, I think, grip our hearts, uh, grip our lives, uh, grip our every day, is this, that when we walk with Christ, we will know Him and we will be taught by His Spirit This is certainly referenced at at the end of verse 39 in chapter 7. But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But here's where he is heading. He is heading to be glorified. He is heading to the cross. That's the direction that this journey is taking him. That's why it's not until this point, this specific opportune time, that he steps up in the middle of the temple to fulfill this prophecy from Malachi chapter 3. And he begins to proclaim the truth of God and the word of God. And he begins to tell all those who are listening who he is and where he has come from. You see, when we walk with Christ, we'll know Him and we'll be taught by His Spirit. This is true for all who follow Christ. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see that their confidence came from the promised presence of the Holy Spirit who brought to their remembrance all that Jesus had taught them. And it's the same way that God works by His Spirit in the life of believers today. 
we read and study his word and the Holy Spirit teaches us. And then we engage in these conversations where we are actively sharing our faith and sharing the gospel of Christ. You you know, the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance those passages of Scripture. He brings to remembrance those deep truths that have stirred our own souls in the time that we've spent before Him. And we're able to share those truths with others. God does this by His Spirit. He does this in the life of His children. Jesus said, if anyone... Get this, if anyone is willing to do his will, speaking of the Father, verse 17, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. You know, Jesus' claim extends all the way back to the prologue of the Gospel of John in John 1, 18, where John tells us that Jesus is the only begotten God who explains the Father to us. Jesus, as the word, speaks the very word of God. That's the connection that we see in that prologue. Jesus being the word, coming, revealing God to us. And then John is showing us how Jesus is the very word who speaks the word of God. What Jesus speaks is the very word of God. That's what he is trying to communicate. In fact, in John 5, 19, just two chapters earlier, Jesus has just healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And they were up in arms about him doing this. And Jesus answered and said to those religious leaders, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in a like manner. In other words, Jesus is saying, what I see the father doing, I do. What I hear the father telling me, I speak. When I hear the father say, go, I go. When I hear the father say, stay, I stay. This is what Christ's life is about. This is his mission. This is how he engages in the mission. He is in tune with the father. He and the father are one. Jesus has already said in chapter 6, verse 44, that no one can come to the Father unless he's drawn, or no one can come to me unless he's drawn by the Father. And in 665, responding to the unbelief of the religious leaders, he said, no one can come to me unless it's been granted him from the Father. And so now Jesus responds to their question by, by telling them where his teaching is from. And in doing so, he lays a moral foundation, or he calls them to to make a moral decision. If anyone is willing to do his will, that is, the will of the Father, he will know the truth of Christ's teaching. If anyone is willing to follow God's law, if anyone is willing to carry out and live out the Ten Commandments, then he will know that I am from the Father. The point isn't that we must arrive at a certain ethical standard before coming to Christ. But that in coming to Christ, we completely commit and we are resolved to follow God's will. The person who chooses to do God's will, the believer grows in their understanding and their conviction of God's will through Christ's teaching. And God's will through Christ's teaching is discerned through obedience to The word. So they must hear Jesus speaking the very words of God. 
we must hear Jesus speaking the very words of God. And so the question is, what is it that Jesus is doing through his teaching in the temple? As he steps into the, into the temple and begins teaching, what is it that he's doing? He's calling, he's calling all disciples. He's calling them, come and, and follow me. Believe in me. Be my disciples. See that I point to the glory of the Father. See that I have come from the Father. Believe in me. Stake your life on me. Follow me. This is the clear call of Christ to his disciples. But notice in verse 18, there's an important distinction that I, I think we need to see. And that is in, in verse 18. 18, he says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. The important distinction that sets Christ, that sets Jesus apart from his enemies is that he seeks the glory of his father, not himself. His teaching points to the glory of God. He wants others to see the glory of God. And so as he teaches others, as we, and we should see, as we engage in God's word, as we read and study, and as we interact with brothers and sisters, the point is not to draw glory to ourselves. The point is not to draw fame for ourselves, but the point is to point others to God, to see the glory of God. For as Christ does this, he can say, the one who is seeking the glory of the Father, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. John 5.44, he asked the religious leaders, can, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? See, the call in the life of the believer is not to glorify oneself. Jesus' mission was not about bringing glory to himself, but about bringing glory to the Father. And so we too must understand the truth of verse 17 is applicable for our lives. And let us ask the question of our own lives. Am I willing to do his will or am I seeking my own glory? Is it all about me or is it all about him? This is really the question that we struggle with deep down, isn't it? Specifically, am I willing to do his will? The deepest point of our faith journey and faith walk with Christ, is there, is there something, believer, that you are holding back from God? Is there a way that God has said, follow me in this? This is my will for you in Christ. This is my will for you in walking with me. Follow me in this. And yet, is there a place where you are reserving and saying, no, not that, God. No, not that. I, I want to hang on to that. But yet Jesus is saying, are, are you willing to do his will? If you're willing to do his will, you will hear my teaching and you will know that I have come from the Father. In verses 19 through 24, he illustrates the point by citing Moses and the law. In fact, in verses 19 and 20, he shows the will of God. He shows what it is in verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? 
In other words, he says, why do you seek to kill me? In giving this illustration, one commentator says it demonstrates that his opponents do not share the purity of motive that characterizes his own service to the Father. In other words, they're not concerned with doing the will of the Father. Instead, they're concerned with doing their own will. He's telling the Jewish leaders, simply possessing law doesn't sanctify a person. It doesn't make you more holy. Instead, what possessing the law does is it condemns a person. And so in verse 19, he says, yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Do you make the connection yet? What is the law that he's talking about? It's the Mosaic law. Exodus twenty thirteen says, you shall not murder. Yet they're seeking to murder him. You see, they have the will of God right before them in in keeping the law, and yet they are seeking to disregard the law. But if they had truly been hearing God's word through the commandments, then they would have been pointed to Christ. And so Jesus is telling the Jews the, the will of God is discerned through living according to the law. Then he says... Why do you seek to kill me? Think about it. The Ten Commandments, you shall not have other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or wife or male or female slave or, or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to him. In other words, Jesus is telling them, if you're not willing to do the will of God that you know, then you are condemned and you've missed me. Those who willingly do God's will are those who see and follow Christ. In fact, if they would have been willing to do the will of God, they would have recognized his teaching as from the Father because Jesus' teaching is grounded in the Mosaic law and expresses the will of God and the revelation of God. Jesus didn't say, I came to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. Now, this doesn't dismiss our need for grace and our, our walking in grace, but Jesus is saying, here is the will of God. It is to live according to the law for these Jews, and yet they're forsaking living according to what they know to be God's will for them. And so they are not willing to do the will of God. His second point in this illustration reveals their unwillingness to live truthfully according to God's law. Previously, they had charged Jesus with breaking the Sabbath when he when he healed this man in verse 21. He says, I did one work referencing that lame man who had been laying beside the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. And they charged him with breaking the Sabbath. Then in verse 22, he gives this parenthesis. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. It, it almost seems like this maybe comes out of left field. What in the world does this have to do with what he did with healing this lame man back in chapter 5? And the answer is that it has everything to do. The circumcision, he says, is not from Moses, but it's actually from Abraham. 
In chapter 17, verses 10 through 12, Abraham had received the promise of the covenant from God and said that every male was to be circumcised at eight days old. And then it was later included into the Mosaic Code in Exodus 12. But because it was first given to Abraham, the question becomes, if you circumcise a boy on the eighth day and it falls on the Sabbath, are you then breaking the Sabbath? Because no work was to be done on the Sabbath. And it was a common practice among Jews that they would circumcise a boy at eight years old on the Sabbath. And so Jesus isn't saying that the Jews were breaking the law at this point. Instead, he's pointing out that they're prioritizing the right of circumcision. And because it was a perfecting of the part of the body and keeping God's covenant for the redemption of his people, it was okay for them to prioritize in this way. And his reply then is, how much greater is it if the whole body is perfected of this one man who was healed? And in verse 23, he says, yet you're angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath. They had missed the point of his healing. They had missed the point that he is Lord of the Sabbath and that he has come to heal and to give Life. And so in verse 24, he says, Stop judging. Stop judging by appearance. It's not a prohibition, such as a, a suggestion that, that people should stop exercising judgmentalism. But the call is to exercise moral and theological discernment in accordance with the faith call of verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, and we come to God's will. And we see God's will laid before us. And we know the good we ought to do, and yet we choose not to do it. We sin. He says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know that the teaching of Christ is from God. If this were their position, they would discern that Jesus wasn't a Sabbath breaker. But he is the very one who fulfills the Sabbath and truly ushers in rest so that man will cease striving and know that he is God. The second scene in the text is in verses 25 through 31, where we see Jesus's divine origin. And the question that we must ask is, will we seize him or believe him? Will we seize him or believe him? The crowd has been listening and taking in all of Jesus' teaching. And they begin to speculate about his authoritative teaching. In verse 25, it tells us that the Jerusalemites, those who were probably residents of the city, those Jerusalemites, they, they heard about the plot to kill Jesus because they asked the question in verse 25, Is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? And in verse 26, they say, look, he's speaking publicly. Now, I just want to pause on that word for a moment because it's a significant word that he's speaking publicly. The word literally could be rendered he's speaking openly or he's, he's speaking boldly, 
courageously. He's speaking without any hindrance. There's, there's no one that is hindering him. There's no threats that are threatening him. There's no fear that he's experiencing. He's speaking very openly and teaching very openly. You know, but as readers from our vantage point, we know that he knows the hearts of men. He knows the threats that are in the hearts of each man that are standing there in the crowd. And yet he is speaking openly and comfortably and boldly in the midst of their hearing. Why? Because he wants to proclaim the truth of God. He has come on a mission, and that is to redeem lost souls and to call disciples into the kingdom. And so in verse 26, they, they have speculation. He's speaking publicly, and they're not saying anything to him. The speculation is, goes like this. The conversation might go like this. Do the leaders know this is the Christ, and maybe we've missed it? Is it possible? Is that the reason that they're not seeking to arrest him and, and to seize him at this point? And in verse 27, it's as if they say, Nah, we, we know where this man is from. But then speculating again, They say, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. And so they're kind of reasoning and going through why this is not the Christ, why Jesus isn't the Christ. Have you ever met, have you ever met someone who found a reason to disagree with everything you said? I mean, you, you might say, you might say that's a pretty blue color. And they say, actually, no, that's a a deep purple. They're like a human fact checker, right? Have you ever encountered somebody like that? You say one thing, they're quick to find a reason to highlight why you're wrong. You know, the Jerusalemites were, were, were those kind of people. They kept coming up with reasons not to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And so the objection they settled on regarding Jesus as Messiah was that they knew where he was from. And they did. They knew his earthly dwelling. He was from Nazareth of Galilee, an unimportant, an unimportant town. But they failed to know his virgin birth, that he came down from heaven. And so he was either overhearing their conversations and speculations, or he had divine insight in verse 28, because he cried out proclaiming in the temple as he was teaching and saying, yes, you, you know me and you know where I'm from. But in saying this, the very next line, he exposed their ignorance by saying that they don't truly know about him because he says, I've come not of myself, but he who sent me is true. In other words, he's saying, I really have come from God. They didn't doubt the truth of God, the truth of God's existence. They just doubted that Jesus had come from the Father. And so he follows with, whom you do not know. And so it stands. Because they were rejecting Jesus, they didn't know God. And the implication is clear. He's saying to the Jews who pride themselves in following the law, who pride themselves in knowing the one true God, he's telling them that they don't really know God at all. Because the one who can't discern Jesus, who he is, can't know God. And in verse 29, he makes a concise theological statement, three points. 
in verse 29. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. I know him, speaking of the intimate knowledge that he has in relation to the Father. I know him. And I am from him. I have come down from heaven. I have come from his presence. I have stepped down into this earth. It's his origin. And he he sent me. That is, he he speaks of his mission, why he has come. He has come to redeem the world and to give his life as a ransom for many I want you to notice in verses 30 and 31 the response to his teaching. So they were seeking to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Speaking of this verse, these verses, Carson says, taken together, these verses bear witness to the division that takes place whenever the revelation of God and Christ confronts human beings. You know, verses 30 and 31 reflect what is still common today when the truth about Christ is proclaimed, do they not? A deep divide. I would ask us, church, what, what is it? What is it that keeps us from being more vocal about our Lord who has saved us and who has transformed us? Who are we? Who am I to withhold Christ from others? His mission was to redeem the world by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Should our mission be to proclaim this redemption? I think so. I pray that our souls will be stirred by this great portrait of Christ our Savior as he stood openly in the face of much hostility, knowing men's hearts and told them of God and where he was from and why he came. Can you see him in the temple proclaiming this, raising his voice so that all the masses would hear, speaking openly, freely, boldly, courageously, Believer, what causes you to withhold Christ from others? Is it fear? Fear of not knowing what to say? Fear of rejection? Is it, is it time? We're, we fit so much into our schedules that we don't, we don't have time to stop and to share the, the life-giving truth with others? Maybe it's unconfessed sin. We have unconfessed sin in our life and feel like we are Uh, We are outside of God's presence. Maybe it's emotional separation. We don't we don't want to get involved. We want to stay. uh, We want to stay uninvolved and not emotionally invested in the lives of others. Maybe it's a lack of knowledge on how to share the gospel. What is it? What is it that keeps us from sharing Christ with others? What causes us to withhold Christ? From others, we see him standing there in the temple proclaiming. In your worship folder, you should have received a, another card, a smaller one this time. In fact, the size of a, a business card. Maybe you've taken it out. Uh, maybe it made it to your seat. I haven't seen too many laying around the floor as if they fell out. <clears throat> but as you received your uh, th- this card, I-, I want you to take it out and, and just look at it for a minute. This is called truelife.org. 
org, and, and this is a, a website that is very helpful. Uh, one of the things that I've uh, one of the things that I've, I've come across, and uh, let me just speak transparently here, that one of the things that that has struck my heart in the midst of in the midst of preparing this message has been uh, just my own falling short and recognizing the opportunities that I have missed in offering Christ or sharing Christ with others, and in the midst of uh, in, in the midst of missing uh, these opportunities, my soul has been has been grieved because I've I've recognized my struggle. I've recognized that I have uh, I have just missed these opportunities. And one of the greatest opportunities that I've missed has been when I've done lunch with others and the waiter comes. And I'm not saying that every time you do lunch that you need to be ready to to share the gospel with somebody or that you have to share the gospel with someone. But this has been my own conviction and my own journey. And so as I was thinking, I was trying to think through what, what way I might be able to engage someone when I have just a short amount of time. And so as they... Uh, as they, they would come to the table, I, I might introduce myself and say, I'm a follower of Christ. And in a minute, I'm going to have somebody here and, and we're going to pray. Is there something that we can pray for you about? And then share. One of the truths the Bible teaches about Christ in heaven is, is that there's only one way to have eternal life. And it's through Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And then let them know that, listen, I understand that you're working and I can't monopolize your time, but... But I want you to know that if you have any questions about a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'd like to be able to answer those questions. And uh, I want to give you a card. And on this card, there's a link to truelife.org. So if you've got some hard questions in life, you can certainly visit this link. And it'll talk about uh, about the problem of good and evil. It'll talk about uh, coming those who are who are coming out of cults, Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or uh, some other cult. And it, it gives really good videos about uh, about these different uh, issues that that people are struggling with life issues. But I want to encourage you to uh, to, to take a card like this and, and use a card like this as a tool, as a tool to evangelize, to share the gospel with someone, as a tool to be faithful in engaging others with the message of Christ. Because the bottom line is this. Who am I to withhold Christ from others? If Jesus Christ has truly impacted my life and he has truly transformed me, and given me hope and given me life, then who am I to withhold that gift from others? In fact, just the opposite. I'm called to be an ambassador for Christ. I'm called to take this message and share it with the world. And so here's the division. Some seek to seize Christ, and some believe in Christ. And make no mistake about it, when Christ is presented and spoken of, division happens. People will respond in in one of two ways. They will either reject or they will believe. In the third scene, we see the destination of his departure. In verses 32 through 36, 
The Pharisees were consulting with the chief priest in verse 32, and they gave an order for for the temple guards to go and arrest Jesus after hearing his teaching. And in verses 33 uh, through 36, Jesus begins speaking, or he continues speaking, rather, of his presence only for a little while longer, and then his imminent return to the Father. And so verses 33 and 34, he says, Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The puzzling statement of verse 34 is repeated again in verse 36. And I'm sure the statement haunted the hearers as they tried to figure out where he was going. The truth is, in six months, the statement would come to uh, this truth statement would come to pass. He would be crucified and dead and buried. And then three days later, he would rise from the grave and appear to the disciples and then ascend to the father. But, you know, ever since Christ's resurrection, people have tried to put forth theories in objection to Christ's resurrection. I mean, the theories are numerous. Just to, just to give you a few, there's the, the swoon theory, which swoon means to faint, and they suggest that Christ never really died on the cross. He simply fainted and was placed in the grave, and then for a couple of days, three days, he was able to recover, and then he was able to walk out of the grave, and then he appeared to his disciples. Another one is the theft theory. The apostles stole Christ's body. Matthew 28, 11 through 15 discredits that theory by talking about how the chief priest went to the Roman soldiers and offered to bribe them and pay them so that they would say that the disciples came and stole the body while they were sleeping. There's the empty tomb theory that Christ's resurrection was an embellishment, that it never really happened, a hallucination theory, the impersonation theory, the spiritual resurrection theory, that Christ wasn't bodily resurrected, just spiritually resurrected. There's the unknown tomb theory, that all the bodies were simply dumped into a pit. You know, but one piece of evidence that's never been produced to discredit the resurrection is his body. He said, you'll seek me. And you will not find me. You won't find me. You won't find me because he he rose from the grave. The stone was rolled away and he ascended into heaven. The Apostles' Creed, speaking of Christ, says, Who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell the third day. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. They speculated. Verse 35. Where's he going? This man says he's going away and we can't go to where he's at. Where's he going? Is he going to to the dispersion among the Greeks? He's not intending to teach the Greeks, is he? No, Christ never went to teach the Greeks. But his death and resurrection and ascension ushered in the gift of the Spirit. And he sent his chosen instruments out as ambassadors to proclaim the gospel to the world. They carried out his mission. The church, the challenge is we too carry out his mission The gospel of Jesus Christ is for all nations. We are called to believe it, to live it, to teach it, to proclaim it. So the question is, has the love of God 
the knowledge of God, the trust in God through Christ so impacted our lives that we are seeking to share His glory with others and not take glory for ourselves. Are you living the gospel that's revealed in Scripture as Christ's ambassador? Do you know this Jesus of Scripture, the one who teaches us God's will, who revealed the Father to us, who ascended into heaven and will return to call his bride, the church, to be with him eternally? Am I willing to do his will this morning? Will we seize him or believe him? He has returned to be with the Father. He is not here, but he has given us of his spirit to lead us that we might engage in his mission. Friend, how how are you walking with Christ? Are you willing to do his will? I want to close this in prayer. And invite you to ponder these things this morning. If you want to know more about a relationship with Jesus Christ and trusting in the Christ of the gospel, I want to invite you to maybe come forward and speak with me. I'd love to speak to you more about what it means to trust Christ as Savior. And I'll be down here in front. But you'll have a time just to respond this morning and to uh, spend a moment in prayer before the Lord. Let us pray. Father, as we consider your word this morning. I pray that you would continue to speak into our hearts and our minds and guide us by your spirit. I pray, Father, that you would lead us and direct us in all truth. Lord, I ask that you would strengthen us to live for you and to live for your glory, not to live for our own selves, but to follow you and to walk in obedience to your will. And Lord, I pray for us today that you would give us the strength to respond to you. Not of ourselves, but Lord, from you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?